0: Welcome everybody to another weekly edition of the Econ Weekly podcast. My name is Andrew Young. Uh, We're recording today on Friday, the 22nd of April, uh, a day earlier than than usual. Uh, I am, however, pleased to say I'm joined once again by the publisher of Econ Weekly, uh, Jay Shabit. So hello there, Jay. How, How are you doing?
1: I'm good, Andrew. We have a beautiful spring day here in New Jersey. How's the weather in Texas? Has it started getting hot yet?
0: I, we It's still springtime weather. It's beautiful. Uh, normally this time of year we we get storms coming through. So we get tornado warnings, some hail, uh, but we also get some beautiful uh, spring days up to about 80, 80 degrees Fahrenheit. So I'm pleased to say that's what it's looking like for this weekend. So, gonna, gonna definitely enjoy that. Um, whilst reading Econ Weekly, of course, which is my of favorite course. weekend pastime. <laughs> what better
1: is there? What better thing is there to do on a weekend?
0: <laughs> well, yeah, I, I recommend everybody uh, that does that. So, um, as well as listening maybe to the podcast. I, 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 I... <laughs> yes,
1: yes, that's the only thing that's better.
0: So, so this week, Jay, um, I know uh, the economy and the Fed tries to keep you as busy as possible. Uh, <laughs> but uh, um, this week, in terms of the macro side, um, what news did we, uh, we, we have that we're reporting on?
1: Yeah, so we can start with the Fed. Uh, Jerome Powell, the chairman of the Fed, did uh, appear publicly this week uh, speaking at an IMF event. And uh, more of the same, uh, making clear that inflation is the big devil on his radar, and the Fed is ready to attack that by any means necessary. Even they're talking now that maybe there'll be uh, a half point rather than a quarter point increase at the next meeting, which begins the first week of May. It's a two day meeting. And uh, possibly, you know, you hear people talking about three quarters of a point, or maybe in a full point. Um, and of course, interest rates. Uh, we already had the Fed move a, a quarter point at our last meeting, and that's really sent a shockwave through a lot of the uh, debt markets. It includes, you know, the bond market, Treasury bonds have just absolutely um, just a lot of turmoil. Uh, bond bond prices have just been, you know, going way down, which is what happens when interest rates go up. And then, of course, in the mortgage market. Which is tends to be long term debt, often thirty years. That market is also kind of in upheaval now, where rates have gone. I think we spoke about this last week. Rates have gone, you know, up by by a few percentage points. We're now, I uh, haven't seen the latest numbers, but we're now kind of approaching five percent on the mortgage. Again, still not high in historical context, but definitely slowing th- things down. There was uh, the National Association of Realtors had a couple of reports this week on you know, pending home sales, which are, you know, sales under contract and and actual finalized home sales. And both were down month to month from February to March. So clearly housing market is cooling off. Um, Is there going to be, you know, are we talking, uh, you know, a housing bubble like we had in 2008? No, nobody's really, uh, nobody's really worried about that. Um, It's just a lot of different contexts. In fact, there's um, uh, Ben Carlson, who does a podcast called Animal Spirits. Um, he has a blog as well. Uh, he he pointed to there's there's four reasons why he said the housing market is just not going to crash like 2008 style. So one is that there's just this big uh, growth in the millennial population, you know, people who are starting to form families and they're sort of prime home buying years. So that kind of puts a floor under demand. Um, secondly, just housing inventory is so low that uh, the you know the there's just not that supply glut that you saw you know, during the last crisis. Number three, uh, a lot of people just don't want to sell because um, they're just locked into low interest rates. So people that got a mortgage, you know, at two or 3%, they're not really, you know, eager to sell. So there's not going to be this, you know, just flood of, flood of sales activity that, that hurts the market. And then his final point um, was that just household balance sheets remain very strong. So, you know, there are a lot of people in the United States right now that can still afford a home if they want one. Um, housing prices are still high as we speak. So there's just a lot of, you know, people have a lot of um, asset value there, home equity. Um, So it's, yeah, so that's not, you know, there are plenty of things to worry about in the economy right now. uh, Inflation being one of them, but another housing crash, probably not. Um, Now, if you're a first time home buyer, then, you know, you're in bad shape. But uh, Yeah. yeah, that's, that's not, that's not one to worry about.
0: Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's it's interesting, and I think it's all. We sometimes need to remind ourselves. Obviously, we we talk a lot about interest rate, and you know the potential of a three quarter percent increase. uh, The top end of these speculative ideas. I mean that that does sound sound quite significant. But I mean, we we have to remind ourselves why the Fed is doing this, and uh, you know, inflation. But eight eight percent is really the target that they're looking to address, uh, suggesting that the economy is overheating um, in in some regard, and you know those those supply constraints which are making prices higher, um, ca- causing issues for for the economy. Um, but I I mean, interesting. There's so many. Uh, <laughs> so many unintended consequences as well as the intended consequences that could result from from the fed taking these macro decisions on the economy
1: right it is it is a pretty powerful bullet that you're firing at the economy when you raise interest rates and you know in in theory it's going to help bring down inflation although you know inflation is shaped by a lot of other forces besides interest rates including as you mentioned supply chains so the fed you know, the Fed might not have to do anything. and if suddenly there's uh, you know the Los Angeles ports start clearing out or uh, the railroads are able to hire more people to handle all the demand they're seeing, well then you know inflation might come down by itself. But the Fed, as, as Powell actually said at the IMF event, um, the Fed can't rely on that happening anymore. They can't just wait and hope that supply chain will get supply chain, you know things will get better. So they they just have to move to slow the economy. Now the question is, is the economy slowing? So we're all looking for signs of that. Um, Just uh, was it yesterday or today? um, There was a new uh, S and P Global put out a purchasing managers index. It's just a survey of uh, you know people at companies that you know do a lot of purchasing. So it's they're 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 people that you know have a they're they're at the center. They kind of they have they have a good view of what's going on. And the sort of takeaway was that, um, so in April, the economy is clearly still very strong in terms of, you know, lots of hiring, lots of orders coming in from customers. It's, uh, there's really not too many signs of that being a big problem, but they did mention that the pace of that is slowing a little bit. And this is, again, it's just a survey. So it's, you know, it's not, it's not like hard data here. But you know, people at these companies are saying that, yeah, you know, maybe um, we're maybe a little bit more pessimistic because we've had to raise prices so much and the price, you know, and that's sticking, we're still getting people to buy, but we think that maybe you know, the longer this lasts, we keep having to raise prices that you know, maybe this is gonna hurt demand. Um, and there are some, yeah, service, I think they mentioned in the report that some service companies, especially this distinct from the manufacturers, but uh, companies that provide services, are seeing you know already seeing a little bit of a slowdown. So you know nothing you know nothing to be alarmed about yet, but it's definitely something to keep an eye on.
0: Yes, indeed, something to keep an eye on, and and I guess we have the opportunity to do that at the moment with a lot of companies. Uh, we, we we're now deep into earnings reporting season uh, for the Q1 uh, earnings for the first first quarter of the year. I think we had some interesting ones uh, reporting this, this week, uh, Jay. Um, one that's hit the headlines a lot is, is, is Netflix. And I think it was a little bit of a surprise that they reported to the market.
1: Yeah, it, it was, it was quite, quite, a, quite a disaster, actually. Um, they reported that their subscribers uh, actually shrank from uh, you know, quarter to quarter, and that was the first uh, decline really in, you know, in, in, in memory. Uh, so that absolutely just tanked the stock price. And I think, I think Netflix is going uh, to have to look, you know, today, but the latest I saw was that their um, their stock is down by more than any other in the S and P 500. So it's been a real uh, you know, real. Bomb. I remember this was a stock and a company that was booming during the pandemic. Everybody was, locked in their homes watching tv all day Mm -hmm. and now it's kind of the opposite people are maybe not watching so much tv so the other you know there there are other things at play here uh one is that uh there there may just be a bubble in streaming television uh streaming content because you have so many companies you know all these big media companies have their own streaming products now there is this big kind of you know, um, fiasco at CNN, where they put out this streaming page, streaming product, and it lasted all but, you know, 30 seconds. <laughs> and then,
0: yeah, well, less, and, le- Literally less than a month, isn't it? CNN yeah, plus? Yes. <laughs>
1: less than a month. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there's whatever they're going through a corporate takeover and stuff like that. There's, you know, whatever the reasons were, but there may be just too much out there. You know, Disney has theirs and Comcast has their stuff with Peacock, I guess it's called. And um, there's Hulu and there's uh you know just everybody who's everybody in media uh,
0: Apple as well uh,
1: exactly so it's not just Hollywood it's not just Disney and, and but but it's also uh Silicon Valley too exactly like the Apple's yeah. got the, you know well, Apple's got their TV and Amazon's got their Prime and and Google's got YouTube uh streaming chat so yeah very very competitive
0: and Apple, of course, won the best picture at the uh, at the Academy Awards. There was actually some awards as well as the uh, the Will Smith story, that, <laughs> the Oscars this year. Yeah, um,
1: they, they did. Um, they did receive like best picture, right? What was was um, did you see that movie? I did not because I don't have Apple TV. But did you uh, happen to catch that?
0: Yeah, no, I, I haven't yet. I also don't have Apple TV. I literally only have Netflix out of all of those various options that you, you talk through. Um, we survived just on the one streaming platform. Um, and I think Netflix must have the largest catalog and the largest variety. Um, and actually as a multinational household, we particularly like Netflix because it, it's so international. The content is sourced from all around the world and they are absolute masters in terms of uh, dubbing. Uh, you probably see on Netflix, the, the choice of languages that you can actually watch content in is really impressive. Um, and certainly people like Amazon and other, other streaming networks, they, with their original content, they don't really have that kind of variety.
1: Oh, wow. Yeah. I hadn't heard that before. And I, and I know, yeah, I mean, I, I know they have a good reputation. I, I don't have, the only thing we have here at our house is, is the Disney. And uh, but, but I've, you know, Netflix is to be clear, they're still um, the leader in this space. They have 220 million subscribers, I think it is, which is, you know, that's that's a lot more than even Disney, which is number two. Now, Dis- Disney started much later. and, um, but, uh, but yeah, th- and then Netflix says that there's another 100 million people who are getting it for free because people are sharing the passwords, you know, with family members. So they're actually trying to do something about that. They're trying to come up with ways to, you know, get people to pay pay off when instead of sharing uh, so we'll see how successful that is the other thing you know that they're that they are actually thinking about doing which they've never thought of before is advertising you know having a separate cheaper service uh, for people who are willing to watch ads um, and they were always kind of you know they were always kind of against that but uh, they you know I guess I guess when your stock price goes down by 30 percent you have to be more accommodative to new ideas um but you do wonder if something like that would affect their brand because i think there are a lot of people that you know kind of like like the fact that they can watch netflix without ads and i I, you know and i think i assume they can they just have to pay more but um you know they may there may be some brand uh repercussions there
0: yeah yes absolutely i heard a statistic (laughs) i think it was saying that children watching netflix get 11 extra days a year because of the lack of uh (laughs) advertisements on there I um, I mean speaking as a Brit and of course I grew up with the BBC as our main kind of media channel um, Terrestrial TV of course and there is no advertising on there and uh, it's it's kind of a real gift uh, that you definitely notice uh, the difference now the BBC used to do a lot of advertising for their own shows <laughs> So it wasn't completely ad-free, but it didn't have the commercial adverts, um, ad the commercials that you get on all the other channels, either on radio or on television. And um, since I've worked, lived in the US, I can still listen to BBC content, but it has advertising, and it is the weirdest uh, thing in the world to listen to commercial advertising on the BBC.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And we have, yeah, we have our, you know, our public television stations here and it's kind of same thing. They, they don't want to advertise, but they kind of do advertise, you know, there's, uh, there's definitely sponsorships and things like that.
0: So, um, so moving on from kind of the earnings or kind of linked to some of the news that came out um, uh, this week, we, we also cover in Econ Weekly about the, well, the strange case of what's going to happen with, <laughs> with gas stations. Uh, So, kind of one of the the largest features of uh, road infrastructure in the United States uh, and urban infrastructure as well. Um, Of course, huge disruption in the entire business of mobility, Um, cars, personal cars, trucks, moving from the ICE, the internal combustion engine, which uses gasoline, to cleaner sources Uh, electric is the is the main one but also we have hydrogen as well but essentially no need to kind of fill up at a pump which is what we've been doing for the last hundred years at at gas stations um right so what's what's happening with all this real estate uh, (laughs) as a result
1: it kind of makes you wonder yeah if we're going to go through this big transition and what the uh what our what our future future drives are going to look like but um, yeah, this came to my attention uh, from uh, Vox's Recode is is um, website, uh, and they um, there's a journalist Rebecca Highwell. I'm not sure if I'm saying your name right, but she uh, wrote a uh, story about this. You know how uh, the situation with gas stations and the almost existential crisis state they might be facing as people drive electric cars, because you know some of the gas stations are uh, they you know they are trying to provide charging stations but a lot of you know if you own a tesla or electric car, a lot of people just do that at home or there's a lot of these stations that are set up in shopping centers i know we you know if you go to a uh, i don't know costco or panera bread or something you you'll go in the parking lot and you'll see yeah you'll see tesla charging stations there you won't see any gas stations i mean you won't see any actual places to pump gas but you'll see chargers so you wonder now the the gas station business model is really interesting um the it you don't know, these companies don't make money off selling gas they make money off of selling stuff at their convenience stores typically um and sometimes they have you know uh, they do maintenance and you know whatever they have a garage on site This some of them they, they they're, they're different variations of the business model but you know what's very typical is yeah someone go someone's on a road trip they need some gas they stop they go into the convenience stores to use the restroom and they pick up a you know, they pick up a candy bar on the way out or a pack of cigarettes or whatever. Um, and that's that's really how these gas stations make their money. And they're typically franchised. So most are not owned by, you know, you might see an ExxonMobil gas station, but it's not really owned by ExxonMobil. They just license the brand. The owner will be typically a lot of immigrants get, get involved in this business. Um, it's a, you know, it can be a very difficult business. It can be actually a very dangerous business. Um, there's a lot of, a lot of crime uh that happens uh at gas stations
0: long hours unsociable long hours, long hours as well. yeah.
1: yeah no exactly so yeah so a lot of you know it 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 does tend to be something immigrants get into uh and um you wonder if uh you know how much longer the business model really has in in the age of uh electric vehicles now how fast electric vehicles will sort of become to dominate the highways, that's kind of a separate question. Um, te- among the, you know, we're in the thick of earnings season right now. So last night I was listening to Tesla's earnings call and they had a fantastic quarter. I mean, there's, they can sell a lot more cars than they're selling. And the, just the problem is they just can't get enough, you know, it's mm. the, the supply chains. It's They can't get enough of the materials they need. They, you know, they've got a factory closure and shotgun. They've done an amazing job considering all that. I mean, they managed to grow. Um, their sales by quite a lot, uh, but definitely like demand exceeds supply uh, for electric vehicles right now. Um, and there's all these questions, you know, whether there'll be enough, you know, can will there be enough battery supply to support all the electric vehicles that are expected to be on the roads that that even you know government policies are expecting or, or kind of guiding um, the, the the market to to go towards you know by by 2030, let's say. Uh, it's I don't know like it's just the there's definitely question marks around that whether or not there's going to be enough you know whatever you need nickel and
0: yeah, lithium um, yeah. lithium
1: yep yep and yeah in fact Elon Musk during the call talked a lot about lithium uh, so yeah that's open open question
0: no I, it, it, it is indeed and um, you know people just assume well clearly somebody in government has considered this in terms of moving to a, uh, you know, a non-carbon future, Uh, but that's not always the case. And uh, I think now there's this, people are seriously looking. I mean, the the Biden administration last year issued a priority for different industries, and one of them was uh, electric battery production. Uh, which they're providing infrastructure and funding for i think another one was semiconductors as well to ensure that supply chain could be secured have more of a national um, kind of production there wherever possible and less dependency on let's say let you know slightly more volatile um, markets uh, where these things are sourced from at the moment um I, I think just going back to the gas station um, point I mean, What's interesting is that you mentioned the re- that you're, you're driving along and you stop because you need to use the restroom. Um, it doesn't matter what vehicle you, you're, you're in, electric or gas, that that's physiological kind of requirement is still going to exist. So there's still going to be a requirement for somewhere for that convenience as well as the ability to buy Drink and stock up on some some calories as well, which which we need on these long journeys. Um, that that it, may
1: be the that may be the ace in their back pocket, the bathroom. Maybe they they that's ultimately what saves them.
0: Well, yeah, but if you're saying you know the petrol or the gas part of their business isn't where they make the money, in some ways it means okay we can get rid of all the all that huge amount of space, the um, the you know the I guess the the flammable nature. <laughs> <laughs> what we've got to store and actually just go back to just being a you know grocery stroke convenience store um, might make it a you know a quite a different different business model.'d um, be interesting to see kind of you know how that starts to to evolve. I mean the other point is charging your right is typically done at home, but it's not exclusive. and any you know long distance driving is going to require charging stations. And they, you know, from what I know about this, they go from slow to rapid charging. Uh, You pay different rates depending on the type of charging you're doing. Um, And then there's also, uh, there's a compatibility point as well. In North America, there are different charging uh, connections depending on the vehicle that you have. I mean, Tesla have their own charging stations because their vehicles aren't compatible with other charging stations. Um, in the European Union, they forced the standardization. So Tesla had to kind of provide a connector or an adapter, but that doesn't apply here. So we may end up having more of these stations than we currently do because you know it doesn't matter what brand of car you drive, um, you, can, you can use any gas station because that pump just fits into the... Uh, into the hole where you where you put your your gasoline, um, with electric vehicles, are we going to see different different charging stations with different types of vehicle, different connections? Um, I think there's a lot of things that well, need, we need to see how it evolves. Uh, it's going to be interesting to watch. Yeah, for sure. So um, another area that we covered uh, this this week in Econ Weekly was. Uh, you were referencing an article that The, the Economist uh, newspaper covered regarding the, uh, the, the incredible growth of uh, Indi- Indian uh, IT companies and, and, and that sector. So this is not a new sector. This has been around for many decades now, and it's been very, very successful. But I, I think recently, you know, whether that's probably through the pandemic period, They've seen, uh, seen quite a, quite a, a, an uptick in their, their fortunes.
1: Right, right. And, and just to take a step back, so when we think about outsourcing, what, what, what often comes to mind is how the United States over the last, you know particularly since 2000, because that was the year, maybe it was 2001, that was the year that China joined the World Trade Organization and sort of started along its path to becoming essentially the factory to the world. And the U.S. really outsourced a lot of its manufacturing to—I'll say China. It's, it was a little broader on that, you know, not just China, but China was, you know, um, was really the center. And uh, so other countries did this as well. And anything that really wasn't, you know, that could be done with essentially cheap and unskilled labor um, was pretty much shipped off to China. So if you, you know, one one kind of fascinating exercise is if you're ever in a Walmart or in a Target, just walk down the aisles and pick up random items and look and see where they were made. And there's a good chance that they were made in China. Uh, and that was even perhaps more true you know, a few years ago. Uh, and that um, is definitely a sort of a defining characteristic of the U.S. economy even today. But one thing that maybe gets a little bit less attention is that it's not just the manufacturers who outsourced, but also there was a lot of service sector outsourcing and where that gets interesting as you said was in software and a lot of um us companies because it's not certainly not just software companies but really you know you know every company um nowadays is is digit you know becoming a digital company so there's just this huge huge demand among us companies for software code you know to to write software and india um which never really successfully Became a manufacturing base like China did was able to become this incredible, incredibly strong uh, base of software production. And these three or four companies in particular, which we mentioned, that's um, you know one of them is the Tata Consulting Group (TCS) and uh, Infosys is another. These companies um, are have very prominent roles um, in in among U.S. companies. Um, they build a lot of the software for you know, that you and I use every day. Um, and what's interesting, this, as you, I think you mentioned, The Economist uh, did a profile on their, uh, you know, current conditions for for these companies. And they've actually been getting a nice tailwind from the pandemic because they're helping to write the codes that make all these work from home software tools work. And they're helping to write the code for, uh, you know, just just all sorts of just, as the economy changes, they have to, companies have to adopt and they're, they're relying a lot on, um, these Indian software, um, engineers. And, you know, they of course, they the reason why U S companies do that is because it's cheaper. You know, the, the, they can, the Indian software engineer is going to be less costly than doing that at home. But that's not the only reason. I mean, the, the quality is generally good. And also the, um, uh, it just the availability. I mean, there's just not enough software engineers to to meet the demand here at home among, Ameri- among you know, native born American workers. Um, and in fact, as, as the economist mentions, the um, a lot of these companies also have very large workforces in the U S as well. So I think it's a TCS that's building a big uh, facility in Indianapolis. Mm. Um, and yeah. so they're, yeah, they're, they're, they're big employers here in the U S as well. Uh, yeah. But it's a yeah, it's a part of the economy that uh, yeah sometimes gets overlooked.
0: No, I, absolutely. I mean yes, and it's it's a very good point to stress because uh, and I I have worked with some of these these organisations in the past, and you know everybody assumes this is uh, outsourced to India. Well, actually, it's not. They have huge American-based workforces, and one of the challenges that many companies have is is recruiting talent to work in software. And typically, software engineers prefer to work for a technology company because it can give you a, some variety, um, give you maybe more job prospects than working, you know, at Target or um, you know, Cargill or ExxonMobil in their IT function. Um, not always the case, uh, but you know, the, definitely there is a squeeze on labour, and um, even if uh, this is all going to be sourced to use the terminology onshore rather than offshore, even if it's going to be sourced by people working in the United States, tends to still go to outsourcing companies. Um, and those Indian large ones you mentioned, TCS, Wipro, Infosys, they, they are highly competitive in this marketplace. They are huge employers of, uh, of, 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 folks that are, are based in the U S and, and abroad. Um, I think the other interesting thing about the market they're in, um, there's been a huge kind of transformation in, in technology. Everybody's aware of things moving to the cloud. So what that really means is that instead of all of the systems and applications being held locally, so each company would have their own kind of data center and server rooms, um, it means that you can actually kind of have this in a shared data center, that's what the cloud is, it's not literally in the sky in a cloud, it just means that it's, it's kind of invisible, you, it's not in your facility, it's in a large shared data warehouse, and they are typically operated by Microsoft, Google, and famously Amazon, Amazon Web Services. Um, but that has created an opportunity for these outsourcing companies. Where previously they used to provide people uh, locally to assist with the uh, the applications on a local basis, now there's a huge demand on making things work in the cloud. Um, because typically those platforms like Microsoft and Amazon Web Services, it's essentially just a platform. You know, it's it it gives you the the tool, but you need to get it integrated. You need to make it work for your business. So they have seen that huge kind of demand come through. Um, And I think that's, you know, that's, that's reflecting in some of the record results uh, that we've been seeing them, uh, them publishing.
1: Right, right. And we we should add that some of these companies and others as well in India, um, many, many listeners will, will recognize this. Uh, They're also involved in uh, a lot of customer service functions. So when you call up and, you know, you might call up so-and-so company and you need a refund and, or you have a customer complaint and chances are you'll get someone with an Indian accent on the other line. Um, I think a lot of Americans are familiar with that. Uh, They, this sort of call center outsourcing is another sort of variation of this as well. Um, But, but the, but the software engineers, that's, you know, that's, that's a, um, that, that's a thing by itself and, it, and it's, you know, a very important part um, of what, you know, an yeah. important trend for, for US companies.
0: Although, I mean, it's interesting to say about the uh, the call center. I mean, there's a lot of automation taking place. There is a lot of AI and uh, basically technology is replacing people um, and taking away a lot of the, the, the volume of that work there. So there is a short-term need for bringing in uh ai artificial intelligence uh, kind of smart digital solutions but that actually should you know reduce uh the kind of need for for so many people in, in 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 these these roles um so it's going to be an interesting evolution i think um for the future in terms of where where the the growth might be it might just be more of a higher value activity rather than continued more and more scale.
1: Um, right and i know there's an effort in places like silicon valley to also make software code writing more simplistic and less labor intensive and yeah. you know who knows where that goes but it it could it could be a potential threat for some of these indian companies if you know if if it just becomes if 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 i if i you know someone like me eventually could could write software code without knowing anything and you know be, be without any kind of uh, special training uh, then you know you you wonder if, if that's that becomes a threat, but I don't think we're there yet. I think there's still you know a big big demand.
0: But it, yes, yeah, I, I think we're a long way off. That uh, a long way off. Take take rooms itself. It's, uh, um, so mm-hmm. so Jay. I would like to kind of find some time before we, we close up this week's edition to to focus in on the the location. For, for this week's Econ Weekly. As regular readers will know, each week, we, we, we pick on a, a location or a region and do a little bit of a deep dive on that place, its economy, some of its history. Um, and Kansas City is the chosen uh, destination this week. And uh, I thought I knew a fair bit about Kansas, Uh, Kansas City itself. Um, I was wrong. I I learned so much. It's got a really kind of fascinating uh, and and rich history, uh, hasn't it?
1: It sure does. I first became somewhat aware of Kansas City's history when I read, um, there's a a biography, a very famous biography of of President Harry Truman uh, written by David McCullough, who's a Pulitzer Prize. I think he won the Pulitzer for that Book. I'm not sure of that, but he he certainly won his fair share of prizes uh, and a acclaimed author. And in that book, um, he profiles Harry Truman's uh, days as a uh, both uh, operating a clothing store in downtown Kansas City and as part of a political machine, which was you know he, Harry Truman didn't really fit the part, but he was part. He was, he was a member of this, or at least uh, a, um, uh, a civil service official during a time when Kansas City was controlled by this no- notoriously corrupt political machine called the Pendergrass machine. Uh, and it was one, you know, some people may, may be familiar with Tammany Hall in New York, and there have been, uh, you know, the dailies in, in Chicago. And there's, you know, starting around late 1800s, early 1900s, um, some of these cities were their politics were controlled by these, these essentially machines. And, uh, you know, they, we talk a little bit about in the issue of how the, how the machines work, but, uh, Kansas city really was a kind of rough and tumble place in the, uh, particularly like the 1920s, the roaring twenties, and even into the thirties the depression era thirties, uh, a lot of, um, you know, just in, in some ways, the way we think about Las Vegas today or new Orleans, you know, just a place where people went to, uh, you know, engage in vice and uh, uh, a lot of, you know, they had, they had a really, you know, um, famous music scene, jazz, uh, jazz scene that uh, that evolved in Kansas city. Um, so it was a very, it had a very different reputation than it does today. And, you know, during the court over time, you know, after world war two, like a lot of cities, you had sort of a mass flight to suburbia. And so a lot of the neighborhoods where, you know, some of these, you uh, you know, some, some of these activities take place sort of, you know, they, they sort of died down got quieter. Um, and today, you know, Kansas city's kind of seen as more of a sleepy pace. Now they have, I haven't been there recently. It's been, it's been, the last time I was there is like 19 late 1990s. So I can't really, uh, you know, I, I can't really speak too much from experience, but I know they've, uh, they've done a good job in revitalizing the downtown. Um, but at the same time, they still they're not Chicago in terms of, you know, becoming a big global city with, you know, millions of tourists coming in from abroad each year. You know, it's not it's not San Francisco. It's not New York. Um, so it's kind of in between. It's they have a very, you know, it's, it's a solid economy with a lot of professional jobs. Uh, they have decent population growth, you know, 7 percent population growth during the 2010s, uh, which is much better than, for example, Chicago, where population shrank. Uh, so it's so it's it's a good solid economy. But it's but it's also not you know one of these Sunbelt Dynamo economies that we talk about at e- in Econ Weekly all the time you know the Austins the Charlottes, the you know where you live uh, down in uh, down in Dallas Andrew um, you know it's it's not that either um, but it's you know it's it's solid and they have certain um, it's very very good because it's so centrally located it's excellent for transportation and that was originally why people first went there is because it happens to be you know along where two rivers meet, Missouri and, uh, and uh, Kansas River. Is that, did I say that right, Kansas River? And um, the eventually the railroads came. And today it's still very, very, in fact, there's even a railroad that's named the Kansas City Southern Railroad. Um, so it's, I think, the second busiest railroad market in the country after Chicago. Um, so there's a lot of it like distribution and logistics activity there because of its centrality. Um, there's, uh, you know, of course, as we talk about with, pretty much every single place we profile, a um, lot of healthcare, uh, a lot of, you know, education jobs. Um, doesn't have, you know, one thing it doesn't have that some others, you know, some other cities of its size, do. doesn't have a state, you know, it's not the state capital of Kansas, doesn't have a, like a huge university. So in that sense, it's lacking. You can you can sort of see it's, you know, it's got sort of a fair strength of, a fair mix of, of strengths and, and uh, you know, I wouldn't say weaknesses, but, you know, certain things that it's not. Um, one interesting, uh, fact here is that, uh, Meadow, which is, you know, you might better know it as Facebook, they, um, they're building an $800 million data center in Kansas city. So it's attracting some, um, you know, some, some jobs like that, or some, uh, new infrastructure like that. Uh, and the final thing I'll just say about the, the economy there is that there are a lot of federal government jobs. Obviously, you know Washington D.C. is is where you're going to have most of your federal jobs, but the, those jobs are also scattered around the country. You know, Denver is another place with a lot of federal government jobs. I'm not even talking about military. So this is just you know federal civilian jobs. But Kansas City has a very big uh, IRS office, um, so that's uh, you know one one aspect of what I'm talking about. Uh, but in general, it's um, I, is the number about. Um, think, yeah, the IRS alone is about 5,000 workers in Kansas City. And then I want to say there's another 20,000 or so federal workers. So that's a um, a big uh, sort of, you know, a lends a lot of support to, to the labor market when you have that. Um, it's very advantageous. Um, big, um, big auto manufacturing place too. The Ford uh, has, there's a Ford plant that produces the F-150 pickup truck, which is the best-selling vehicle in the United States and has been for many decades. So the um there's that as well
0: yeah i it, it the diversity fee in in kansas is quite incredible i mean I, i'm obviously aware of the transportation background there um kcs uh i mean the other major railroads kind of running through there um east west and north south and um and i think it, you know back in the day twa transport airlines had a huge kind of presence out of kansas as well um and uh i think the other the other you're trying there, to
1: get me to talk about airlines again
0: uh, well this is when we get taken off the air but uh, <laughs> uh but i i think um so sprint mobile i believe their headquarters are in in kansas i know now they're part of t-mobile um but um yeah i uh it it's certainly a place that I've never been to. Kansas. I really plan on uh, on being able to go there. I think I've been there for well, I've been there for a meeting, literally from the airport and back again. Um, I'm kind of kind of now intrigued to see a little bit more of it um, and the the history that it has. It, it's it's fascinating, and I guess if you think of you know it, its location and its size, um, maybe some of that's not 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 that surprising. Um, I mean, it is an incredibly well uh, connected, um, you know, its location actually works really well as far as where the continent is and where the power centers are economically within the United States.
1: Yeah, and it's funny because of its, uh, its um, and I promise not to uh, <laughs> go, go spend, spend uh, 10 hours on, on talking about airlines here, but it, it is given its centrality, you think that it might have been, a, you know, developed into a more important airline hub. And right now, the city is trying to um, improve that situation by uh, redeveloping the airport. One, the airport was very poorly designed. Um, it just had a, it just the the, the way the airport was uh, laid out made it extremely difficult for connect to, to foster connecting traffic, which is you know if you're going to run a hub at a place, you kind of have to make it easy for people to connect. Uh, so they're going to change that now. You know, are they become? Are they going to become the next Chicago? Well, the problem is Kansas City is still not, you know, to be to be a real major player in terms of you know being an airline hub. You uh, you really need the a much larger population base than Kansas City has, or you need to you know have a huge amount of tourism. So don't expect Kansas City to be the next you know Chicago or the next Atlanta, but uh, but they may perhaps. You know, improve their situation, um, especially with an airline like Southwest that can, you know, do these little mini hubs, and you know, you might might see more activity from a carrier like that in Kansas City with with the evolution of the new airport. So, something to keep an eye on there. Uh, one thing I just wanted to make perfectly clear: Kansas City is actually in two states. um, the The downtown, or uh, you know, most where where most things are, actually in the Missouri side. So so we're we're actually talking about Missouri and Kansas here but it's um, it's a, lo- a lot of uh, a lot of what um, a lot of what we've been talking about today is actually happening in the Missouri side
0: yes yes that's that is the other old thing a lot of people mm-hmm. kind of just immediately assume it must be the state of Kansas then It's they they're literally there on on the border reminds me a lot of uh, lot of places on the texas uh, mexico border actually where there is literally a city on both sides of the borders um sometimes it has the same name sometimes it's uh, it is a different name but actually it is the same metro area um and uh yeah makes makes it interesting for uh for for, for town governance i would imagine
1: yes yes and st louis which we profiled last year that's on the other side of the Missouri, so other side of missouri so it's uh yeah, there's an interstate that connects the two but mm-hmm. um but uh yeah that's uh that's missouri's got uh yeah they've got the, those two big cities and interestingly enough they both have federal are 12 federal reserve banks in, in the u.s and missouri has two of them which makes absolutely no sense it, uh, <laughs> it's uh that's another story too that has to do with uh, the domestic politics back in 1913 or whatever the federal reserve was created um <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. the Federal Reserve system is kind of a funny, if you like, I, I realize I'm going off on a tangent here, but it is kind of funny to see where the Federal Reserve, there's no Federal Reserve Bank in Los Angeles, which is the second largest economy. But there's one in, uh, you know, Richmond, and, excuse me, Uh apologize for that interruption there, um, but uh, but there's one in Richmond, there's one in Cleveland, and that just reflects, you know, which countries, or sorry, which cities and economies were, were large at the time the Federal Reserve was was created so theoretically you can go back and kind of redo it but that would just be too politically
0: (laughs) that's that's right well you could say that's why we have greenwich mean time and all the clocks kind of come from london because at the time that was the center of the world (laughs) (laughs) uh, okay jay i think that probably is a sign that we probably could to the end of uh, today's um podcast so we
1: were going off the rails there a little bit at the end (laughs)
0: But but before we go, I would also just I mean, there is a there's a great post uh, script in this week's edition about uh, Alfred Sloan and uh, the history of uh, General Motors. So quite a lot of interesting things that we didn't even get time to cover today. So I recommend everybody to take a look at this week's Econ Weekly. Um, I will, uh, I will sign off and uh, thank everyone for joining us. So Jay, I'll let you do that. And then maybe remind everyone where, where they can find, uh, Econ Weekly.
1: Yeah. It's at econweekly at substack.com. And you could always email me, uh, Jay, at econweekly.biz. And, uh, always looking for suggestions, uh, for cities to profile as well. So, uh, please feel free to send. I know we've gotten a couple, a couple of people out there have sent, uh, sent a few great suggestions. So they will absolutely be uh, under consideration.
0: Uh, okay, that sounds good. More Towns advice, maybe. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> okay, yeah, have a good week, Jay. We'll, we'll, we'll be back next week. Sounds good. Bye-bye.
1: Bye-bye, everybody.